Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined by Hari Krishnan, Head of Volatility Strategies at SCT Capital. Hari, great to see you. Likewise, Jack. Hari, you are an expert in fixed income, derivatives, volatility, equities, bonds. You really do it all. You, you've pretty much worked in everything in traditional finance, including weather. Uh, you don't work in crypto. You have no professional crypto experience. We may talk about that as well. So you, know, you, you like me, are a TradFi guy. Um, but you, you have immense experience, and I consider you one of the smartest people, people in finance. You are the author of the book Market Tremors written alongside my friend and former colleague, Ash Beddington, where you have a lot of interesting ideas. Um, how are you doing? Uh, how's this year been for you? It's been very well. I mean, without focusing on crypto too much, um, I'm like the Spanish banks were in 2009. In other words, I was so far behind the curve in crypto land that I, thankfully I actually missed a lot of the recent carnage. So through no skill of my own. Uh, so I'm, I'm hanging in there. And I hope other people are too. Mm. Yes, definitely. Hari, in your book, Market Tremors, you, you know you have a lot of ideas about financial systems and something called a dominant agent. So what is a dominant agent? Why is it important that there is a financial dominant agent in, in these financial networks? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, well, it's a thing. I'm not going to assign a, an attribution to it, but um, dominant agents are kind of whales. So classical finance theory says that you have a big network and there are lots of transactions and lots of agents and lots of leverage providers or some leverage providers and so on. And they trade and markets are somewhat efficient. And if you boil down all of the interactions along the network, you can basically model everything just with the historical distribution of returns. And it's been clear that those Classical portfolio theory methods don't work because the tails of real distributions are fatter than those models would predict. The interactions are more complex. And there are times when there are things like fire sales or short-term liquidations, and they simply are not explained by that. And really what goes on in the system is that, yes, there are random shocks, you know, news events, political events, and so on. These are largely unpredictable, but the network effects can be predicted if you know that there are some very big levered players in the system who will be forced to get out, or conversely, forced to provide liquidity given a large enough random shock. So it's a book on positioning risk. That's what it's about. It was intended to cover central banks, options market makers with the melt-ups in GameStop and so on a year ago. Um, ETF providers in illiquid assets and things like that. So it's basically trying to identify who the major players are that may not always be active, but if they're forced into action, will uh, have an impact on the distribution of returns. They can cause fat tails, surprising outcomes, and so on. Okay, so basically traditional financial theory has returns over a certain time period being a normal distribution. So a hump in the middle that scales in a mathematical way such that you know a, a 7% crash in the stock market is pretty damn close to 0%. But in actual fact, we find that these things happen 
a little bit more frequently, in some cases, much more frequently than that the models would suggest. So a lot of that has to do with force liquidations and dumping by large players. So some of those are dominant agents. I guess that's kind of to the negative, causing distributions to be fatter, causing the tails to be fatter. What about central banks, though? What role? I feel like this is something I, I didn't actually hear a lot of talking people talking about before your book came out of central banks as a dominant player. Uh, do they suppress the tail uh, this volatility? Do they do they make the tails less fat? Okay, a great question, Jack. Um, let me just say one thing that classical finance has adapted over time, so the fat tails are included in many of the distributions and so forth. But my point in the book was that these are kind of bolt-ons. They're not fundamental. They're not explained in any rigorous way or in any meaningful way, which is what the book tried to do. Now, what do central banks do? There are many theories. I'm kind of torn between them. One is that central banks do nothing other than jawboning. They set expectations and the market believes they're important and so they are important. If the market believes valuations are important, they are important. If they believe that I don't know, uh, diversification is important than it is. And these things persist until they don't. That's the weakest form of the central bank puts. The strongest form is um, that by varying the rate that they lend to banks or to certain banks and having an impact on bank reserves, which by the way are not usable in the real economy, but which do exist on a ledger, uh, they encourage banks to lend and they can improve financial stability in times when it's needed. Um, that's the more strong version. Now, even if you believe in the stronger versions, there's still a few issues, which is can they can control yields and currency rates simultaneously? Can they can control employment or unemployment and inflation simultaneously? All that jazz in the context of a complex system is questionable. But in the book, what the data showed was that at least historically, in the few cases that we have, if they goosed up their balance sheet by enough, whether that did or didn't have an impact on risky assets directly, uh, credit spreads did come in within 12 or so months. So historically, they have been stabilizing. Now, the reality is short of buying assets outright, going in and buying credit, this, that, and the other, the sort of maiden lane stuff, um, it's hard to say. It frankly is very hard to say. And the more people become skeptical, the more Jeff Snyders of the world there are, uh, the less effective I would presume the central bank will be. So the critique and you know, Jeff Snyder is a great example. I have a lot of respect for his thinking that quantitative mm -hmm. easing in particular, central bank action in general, but quantitative easing in particular has very little effect. I think it's very accurate with regards regards to bank lending, sort of the old school financing of I'm a bank and I'm lending to you, Hari Krishnan. You have a business. I'm I'm sort of commercial and industrial lending. But you know, in the modern day economy with with securities, it's it's all about the it's all about bonds, right? It's all about stocks and bonds. And the Federal Reserve can buy a ton of treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities, so government uh, securities or government agency backed paper, and basically cause those to tr trade extremely rich and then that people have a ton of cash and then those banks from whom the federal reserve bought those securities they go and buy it from their customers and now the customers have tons of deposits and now that sort of it flows through the system so in the securities market 
would you say, so let's just take the Jeff Steiner critique of the bank lending as accurate. Like I, I think, I think it is, but what about the securities market? Cause you said that central banks are uh, effective at compressing credit spreads to me. And I'm just sort of talking way too much. Here. Statistically. Yes. Statistically, yes. The, the, mo the biggest critique of the power of central banks with regards to credit spreads is that they get involved at the very worst time. So that they, they get involved when credit sp spreads are at their peak so that credit spreads can do nothing but decline. So it's, it's sort of just a, a correlation, not causation. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was implying that spreads at least most of the time are mean reverting. Uh, you know, volatilities mean reverting. All risk indices mean reverse. Over what horizon, it's hard to say, and whether they're going to mean revert quickly enough for your levered short position, let's say in the VIX, to come in, that's another question, but they do mean revert. And so it could just be that the natural order of humans, as, as applied to the markets, is mean reverting in that space. That's part of it. And then the other part is that central banks get involved when they're at their most extreme points. Like March Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Um, of course, you never know where the extreme is. And so that actually is implicitly an argument that the methods may work. Uh, because if they are always getting into the extreme, that means that they blocked out the even bigger extreme, um, either through perception, as I said, or through real action. And I think there's a lot of debate and anyone who's honest with themselves, at least in my case, I can only speak of myself, don't really know where on the spectrum central bank's effectiveness lies. I don't think it's possible to say that central banking doesn't work, nor that it is very effective. And walk us through your the data-driven findings that that you you looked through. Um, I, I know you looked back to the 1980s and you sort of divided it into the great financial before the great financial crisis and then after. Did you find that it, the central banks have more power now after the great financial crisis? I think what I looked at was um, periods where the central bank balance sheet size increased by more than a threshold. And what the impact was on credit spreads or risky assets in general. And I found that there was a lag as expected because central banking does operate with a lag other than in the perception space. And, uh, that generally spreads did come in and it's been no different really from the 1930s to the present. The only difference is the amount of balance sheet expansion that they engaged in. And the jump was far bigger in 2008 than ever before. And uh, not only in absolute terms, but in percentage terms. So um, clearly it worked then. And I think the tentative conclusion was that you need to do quite a bit to do anything in percentage terms to get any result. And with such a big balance sheet as what we have today, you have to do a huge amount in dollar terms. I would basically, if you give the patient enough medicine, it will survive, right? At least this go around. Or if you apply a high enough electric shock, high enough voltage, it'll probably spring back to life for a bit. What about, Hari, not the, the role in sort of compressing spreads, but just purely in being a lender of last resort? The reason that the Federal Reserve was created you know, and, and formed it in 1913 mm -hmm. was to stem banking failures. How successful do you think the Federal Reserve is at that? Because they can print high-level bank money at, you know, at a whim. Yes, it's not money that can be used in the real economy, but uh, I mean, if there's a Federal Reserve in crypto right now that 
that, that would be pretty good, I bet. Imagine, or that would be a stabilizing force. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of complexity here because if a healthy bank, everyone thinks a bank is healthy and it goes and into the discount window and borrows funds, that's fine. If a, a bank is known to be in trouble and then it tries to borrow money directly from the Fed, that could be the worst thing it might do because everyone's going to know it's on its final legs. And so this notion that the discount window supports the markets, it does if the banks that are relatively healthy are willing to borrow funds at the window and then lend them out to banks in trouble. But if they're too scared to do that, I don't think the window works because everyone's going to know that there's uh, a wounded animal out there in the banking world and that it's uh, ready to be attacked. Mm. So then to the extent that after the creation of the Federal Reserve, uh, well, huge ass, huge left tail with the Great Depression there. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we like to think that the Federal Reserve is more civilized. You know, in general, not that finance is perfect now, not that it's stable by any means, but compared to the, let's say, the Gilded Age, uh, we have on, on the margin less volatility. I've heard some people say, you know, half as many banking failures and recessions. Maybe that's taking a little bit too extreme. But um, do, do you think the Federal Reserve, yeah, I mean, I mean what do you, what, what do you think? Yeah. Lots of, lots of good comments there uh, too, Jack. Uh, obviously we've moved risk partly from the standard banking system to the shadow banking system. So yeah, I agree. I mean, with Dodd-Frank and the various regulations post 2008. Sorry, Harry, could you define the shadow banking system? Oh, it is, it consists of anything other than a bank that provides lending like a hedge fund uh, even corporate treasuries do some of this, large large sovereign wealth funds, um, and so on. So there are entities that are able to provide many of the functions that banks used to provide when they could take more balance sheet risk, and uh, yet they're not listed as banks. So they don't have the same capital requirements, they don't have the same oversight necessarily, and yet they do the same thing, uh, at least some of the function. And um, these entities, probably the risk has just moved from the standard banking system. So you don't see any headline defaults with savings and loans type entities and so on. But that doesn't mean the risk is gone. It just means it's moved either offshore or off the regulator's grid a little bit. And so it's actually more complex to understand what's actually going on. I'm not really an expert in the shadow in the scope of the shadow banking system. I know that it's very big, it's very diverse, and it's hard to measure how big it is. But if you just make assumptions like how much to what are the size of standard bank balance sheets, yeah. whereas what's the total amount of debt in the global system, you'll see a big discrepancy. Right. Yeah, th thank you, Hart. This is exactly the point I was trying to make and you made it a lot better. Uh, about the sec securities, how if you compare like uh, bank loan to deposit ratios, the the, the deposits is is and uh, M two growth, for example, monetary aggregate is taking into account all of those. Maybe not the shadow banking system itself, but the reflection or the reverse reflection the uh, of uh, banking reserves, whereas loans are not. Loans is sort of the old, old school way. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of collateralized lending that goes on globally. Prior to the great financial crisis, tons of collateralized lending that was backed by crappy collateral, whereas now most of it is treasuries, which, I mean, some could say it's tra- uh, crappy on the interest rate risk, but in terms of credit risk, it's it's pristine. Well, yeah. And again, I don't want to uh, rat, uh, parrot other people, but um, the real issue in uh, securitized lending is liquidity. It's not credit. I know the credit and liquidity are linked, um, but even though treasuries have duration risk, they're highly liquid. Mm-hmm. And the 10-year on the run is more liquid. It trades at higher volumes than any other security, any other treasury security. So even though it's riskier than a T-bill, it's more liquid. So it's more effective as collateral because if someone is accepting that 10-year note as collateral, they're not that worried about um, whether yields are going to widen over the next six months. They're worried about whether they can sell that security tomorrow without price impacts. So the security that has the least impact in a fire sale, the least discount in a fire sale, or in a large-scale uh, sale order is the one that's most desirable for securitized lending. So Harry, you have a lot of intellectual humility and you're not, you're not claiming that you know stuff. You, you don't know something unless you're sure that you know it, which I respect. And so, so far we talked Thanks. about quantitative easing and balance sheet. What about the other side of the central bank toolkit, which is the old school interest rates, uh, hiking or, or lowering interest rates, uh, how effective is that both on the economy, but also uh, financial stability in terms of what are the, what are the effects of it? What, what did you find in your research? Ooh, uh, well, again, it's a question of incentives. Um, if in theory, in whatever textbook I used to look at, um, if interest rates go down at the short end, banks should, in theory, be incentivized to borrow money short and lend long. That's classical banking. It's that duration mismatch that defines standard banking. Being able to borrow at a low rate, roll over the debt, and then lend at a longer rate. And uh, so in theory, it should incentivize banks to be more um, aggressive in offering loans because the spread is bigger. The reality is that two things have been operating across purposes since the GFC which are uh, increased regulations which hamstring banks and all of these monetary policy incentives which incentivize, which should, in theory, make banks want to lend more, but the things are fighting against each Mm -hmm. other, these two factors. And so it's unclear what's going on other than that banks are willing to take less risk. And you see that all over the map, Uh, whether it's negative swap spreads, which should be an arbitrage, for banks because they basically can collect a treasury yield, lend at a lower yield, and they have the more secure asset. So they're actually uh, long default risk and collecting carry for that. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. 
Curve Card also has a feature called Go Back in Time, where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after, actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve. Go to fgpodcast.link forward slash Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. Curve Card is powered by Hatch Bank. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to the interview. Uh, Hari, can you just explain what a negative swap spread is? I remember first uh, encountering it in Alex Gurvich's book, which I, I recommend. And he had a nice, concise... Oh, the Trades of March. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a nice book. He, he had a nice yeah. um, explanation of it, but it escapes mm-hmm. me. So what is your explanation for it? And yeah, for, first, what is a swap spread and uh, the, the fact that they're negative? Why, yeah, tell, tell us your thoughts. So there's a market for interest rate swaps. It's an interbank lending market, and um, there's a term to these swaps. So you might lend over five years or whatever, uh, 10 years, and so on. And basically, uh, the, swap sp- the swap rate is uh, based on a fixed versus floating payout. So let's say the, uh, the swap rate is 4%. That means... If I'm uh, receiving floating, I pay 4% and I receive the floating rate over time. And so some average of the floating rates I receive over time minus the amount that I paid, which is 4% consistently, determines my P&L on the trade. Mm -hmm. But there are two entities borrowing and lending from each other, at least in principle, Um, at at least in terms of P&L swings. so that's a risky loan because your counterparty may default. So if you're on side of the tr- in the trade and your counterparty runs goes out of business, then you don't collect. So there's a little bit of credit risk in that. Whereas an equivalent duration treasury, if you bought that treasury, in principle, there's no credit risk. The government will print or do whatever it takes to um, pay that back. You own a virtually riskless security, at least in theory, so you should be receiving less of a yield for buying that security than for um, engaging in a swap spread, in, in a swap. So the differential between the yield you would get from buying and owning a tr- treasury or financing a treasury where you would capture the coupon and the yield uh, that you receive from taking um, from uh, – lending money to another bank, the treasury yield should be lower in principle than the yield you get for, for lending. And if it's higher, that's a, an, an anomaly. It's kind of an arbitrage opportunity because um, you can get compensated for getting the treasury yield, for owning the treasury or financing the treasury versus um, uh, borrowing money from another entity. I hope I explained that well. There are a lot of moving parts. You did a great job, Har, but just because it's so complicated, I just have a follow-up question. I feel like we're so deep in it already, we may as well just just really go go deep. So if okay. I if I party A, if I party A want to get exposure to a fixed income security, I can buy a treasury or I can do something with another bank, enter into a swap spread. 
in that swap spread where I'm basically getting the equivalent of a treasury, which part of the trade am I on? Am I paying fixed receiving floating or paying floating receiving fixed? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a, the more even more simple yes, please. answer to that, which is that if treasuries yield 4% mm-hmm. and I can borrow at 3% from another bank, oh. and I can borrow at 3% by the treasury, collect the 4%, and do it until the cows come home, and I'll collect something not too far away from 1% for no risk. I hope that's I hope that's clear. That that makes sense. And is this sorry? There are tons of different interest rates. Like, is this LIBOR when people typically talking about it, or it's a different swap? Well, it's tied to LIBOR or software or yeah. whatever. But it's based on it does have a term, meaning that you engage in a contract with some fixed maturity, and if you pay fixed and receive floating, let's say you're receiving LIBOR at periodic intervals or software at periodic intervals. And then the average rate that you received or the time averaged rate is tied to the um, profit or loss on the trade. So if rates go up and you're receiving the floating rate, you win. Um, Maybe it's a hedge, but you win in isolation. And if the reverse is true, you lose. Okay, that makes sense. So theoretically, these things, uh, they might not exist because you can arbitrage them out. Uh, why do they exist? Why are swap threads negative? They shouldn't be, and they have been for a while. Uh, it's because banks simply cannot absorb the extra balance sheet risk to squash the spread. That's the only logical explanation. So if you are... Um, the analog of SBF, not in the international crypto markets, uh, whether that story is true or not is another question, but in the swap spread versus treasury markets, but you're, you have a margin call or you're close to hitting your risk limit, you can't do the trade. You need to have enough balance sheet capacity to do the trade, whether it's a question of risk, which is more likely, or regulatory limits, which is less so, um, doesn't matter. It just, just free money will be left on the table if no one has any cash or a- access to credit or willingness to engage in a risky trade. Okay. So I'm, I, I obviously believe you and I believe that the case, but I'm just finding it like it's hard to understand how there's not enough balance sheet capacity for these banks to finance it. If like, you know, JP Morgan has a trillion dollars in cash, like with deposits with other banks and deposits at the Fed. It's just how is how is I mean if if JP Morgan's balance sheet how big does the balance sheet need to be or is it just that the debt markets now are so big because the sovereigns have been borrowed so much? I'm going above my um, expertise because I don't do these transactions myself, but there are various legs. You have to finance the treasury purchase, uh, and then you have to engage in the swap spread on the other side. Mm-hmm. There are two different kinds of contracts that you're engaging in. Uh, there is a bit of a mismatch in terms of liquidity, uh, counterparty risk, this and that. And then the edge is not massive. It's not as though you're picking up 1%. My example was a bit excessive. It's less than that. And so maybe it's just not worth the while yeah. to do the trade when you can do other stuff. That that makes sense. Har, yeah, your, your real bread and butter is volatility, particularly equity volatility. I want to ask you about that, but because it's kind of a niche topic and, you know, uh, so some of my audience um, might be a little confused, but I might be a little confused by it. I want to ask you about crypto first. So 
central banks exist in the traditional financial world uh, as they have for over 100 years. They are a dominant agent. We've gone through uh, the advantages, disadvantages of, of that. Crypto does not. Uh, why is that significant? And, and does that absence of a dominant agent help explain the volatility and not more than just volatility, instability that we've seen in crypto this year? I'm just a guy on the street, but what I will say when it comes to this, but what I will say is that there seem to be two things going on. One is ownership of crypto, which can be done in a very clean and well-defined way. And the other is transacting in crypto, which forces you to go onto some exchange or some platform. Or some protocol, uh, if you yeah. want to, Some protocol to buy and sell. And I presume, again, I'm just a average Joe when it comes to crypto, I presume that um, a lot of money was held at various exchanges and continues to be, including FTX. And um, we know from the standard finance world that prime brokerage houses do go out of business. It may not be that, that um, um, of course, there are centralized exchanges which are backed by the government and so on, but you can have your money held up at an MF Global or something. And if you're not careful in your treasury management, you can get into trouble. Hari, I've heard so many people throw this comparison to MF Global around I actually hope to have a, on Scott Skirma, a repo trader who actually wrote a book about Follow of MFO, but I really need to know more about it. You've been in the markets for a long time. What was it like when MF Global fell? I mean, did you have friends who were witnessing it? Uh, yeah. What were, yeah, what, yeah what, I mean, was it similar to this, to FTX? Well, again, um, you're too, this is kind of like um, spitballing a bit, for lack of a better phrase. But um, um there was an element of trust in MF Global that also existed here. Uh, the trust there is that John Corzine had was had been, you know, he had a distinguished political career. He had a distinguished career at Goldman Sachs. He was very high up. Um, and I don't want to pass judgment on anyone, but the notion of using client funds to make um even high alpha expected alpha trades is one of the worst things you can do in our business. The whole prime brokerage setup, the whole separately managed account setup is designed to make it impossible or well near impossible to use client funds for other purposes. Um, but the sad thing is that sometimes the people with the biggest uh, connections to power um, can hide corruption underneath it. Madoff is a great case. I think he was the chairman of the NASDAQ. True. If I'm not mistaken. He was. Now, people forget this. You know, they think, oh, it was obvious he was a fraudster and this and that. But um, how much higher can you be? And I think people will make the assumption that if you're that high up, uh, either you're untouchable or there's no way you can be doing stuff because it would have been found out. But I think in the modern Twitter world and so on, people realize that that's no longer the case. People are much more um, strict in their examination of authority figures. Uh, sometimes, in my humble opinion, they go too far with this and it's just character assassination. But I think a lot of things that used to be taken for granted, that politicians always had the best interests of people at heart, that they weren't corrupted by money, 
that there weren't forces working nationally and internationally to affect outcomes that should be democratically determined. Um, those have all come under question now. And uh, the MF Global case was a real, back in 2010, when people were less overtly, most people were less overtly critical about institutions, um, really was a slap in the face. A lot of people got hit. MF Even Global though you just had a global financial crisis where major institutional players went bankrupt, like Lehman Brothers, even then people were more trusting than they are now. I think so. People trusted the, um, well, integrity is a strong word. I know a lot of people said stuff face to face, but I think there was a public belief that large institutions were more honest than the belief is today, even though it may be the case that nothing has changed. Um, so it was a real scare, and it did lead to a push for more advisory-type activities for people to say which platforms are safe, which are less safe, um, this, that, and the other. Um, and uh, a lot of people were hit by that. A lot of people were hit before the crisis by REFCO. This has happened from time oh, to time. Oh, what's REFCO? I, don't, I should know about that. REFCO is another prime brokerage wow. house. It's happened over the years, various... Uh, uh, prime brokers have gone under for various reasons. I'm not saying Refco was the same as MF Global by any means, but people are aware that if you park too much cash at your prime broker, if you don't have a decent treasury function to sweep excess funds outside, or at least to make sure that they're held in your name instead of in some commingled omnibus account, it can be uh, problematic. And so people knew that in the traditional well, the, in the standard finance world, but obviously they didn't know it here and I don't blame them because you you have to get maybe not slapped around, but you need to work with people who've been around to know this stuff. And if no one's been around, what are you going to do? Um, I, I sympathize greatly with the people who've been hit hit by this. Yes. I don't think traditional finance should be wagging its finger at crypto because, you know, traditional finance, as, as you and I know, Hari, it's not a bunch of Boy Scouts. They've de- de- Traditional finance has definitely had its own blowups. But by the same token, pun intended, traditional finance has learned its lesson. And crypto is in the process of learning that lesson. And I don't know about you, Hari, but I feel like for most times throughout crypto, I feel like I'm not at all a technology person. People talk about protocol this, Uniswap that, whatever. It's way over my head. But when I do mm-hmm. see blowups and, you know, I've, I've, you know, not as many as you, but I've read a lot of books about financial, financial panics. Like it's kind of, I feel like it's kind of my wheelhouse. And I feel like, oh, I actually feel like I understand this. And I feel like the crypto world kind of, um, you know, is, is, is learning. Um, I, I want to ask you just about the prime brokerage. So MF Global, do people end up getting their money back? Uh, I don't know the exact answer to that. So I'll refrain from from comments. I don't know how much was retrieved. I, I, I appreciate um, that. It's one of those standard stories where uh, people do get their money back in parts over time, but it takes so long that it's no longer in the news. Yeah. I remember with with Fairfield Century, the Madoff fronts, uh, some decent fraction was recovered. It might have been 50%, 60%. Yeah, but a lot of that came from clawing money back from people who got their money out early, which is which is psychologically, it must be so brutal. It's like, oh, I, I just dodged a bullet. It's like, no, you didn't. The bullet's here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Well, that's the world of money for you. It's so fluid. You have to just keep going in this business and try and do the best you can. Yeah. Um, there's no point. I used to think, oh, if I got X in the bank, I could just sit back and have this static image of myself sitting in a cafe or lying on a beach and that would be it. Life just isn't that way. You have to keep learning and uh, so on. Definitely. Just on the, on yeah. the prime brokerage business model. So I know that if I buy a stock of Apple in uh, mm -hmm. on Robinhood, uh, the stock of Apple is there, and that if the stock of Apple is not there, that's a problem, and that Robinhood has a lot of problems, like FTX has problems. But you can do something with the cash, right? You can, uh, if, if I have you know one hundred thirty dollars in an Apple stock, but also one hundred thirty dollars in cash, and just cashing my account, Robinhood can do stuff with that. And I actually think a lot of uh, brokerages' income now that there's uh, no commission trading comes from that yield on cash. And in some cases, even more than from payment for order flow, which is um, a big factor, but not as not the biggest. Yeah. Well, I'm not really in the stock world. I'm more in the futures world. So in, uh, so I just as a point of clarification, I'm not just an equity vol guy. I'm kind of a pan asset vol guy, but um, having said that in the futures world, at least forgetting options for a moment, um, you might put down five or 10% of the notional value of a contract in cash as margin. So the margin requirement's pretty small when you put the trade on. So you would be foolish to go to a broker, any broker pretty much, and buy a contract whose notional value is $100 and put $75 in to support the trade. You will put a buffer in, there's nothing wrong with that, but you don't want to overfund it because if you overfund it, then if the broker goes out, if it goes under, there's a question as to how much of that you can recover. Whereas if you only put five down or 10 down, uh, the most you can lose is five or 10%. And the odds are that you'll get some of it back. So over committing cash or over committing funds or collateral to a platform for transacting can be dangerous. And so having a good treasury function for a professional is very important. So every good firm has a COO or a CEO who really knows how that business works, who knows a lot of people in the industry, who knows what's going on behind the scenes. It's not a question of reading a book or a pamphlet and finding a bunch of rules and checking them off, which is what due diligence or operations seems to be. In order to be a real guard dog, you need to know the industry. You need to know people, ask around, get a vibe for what's going on, figure out what's doable, what isn't doable. It's really experience-based. And having someone like that in your outfit, or you can talk to even if you're independent, is very important. And um, so the oldies aren't completely um, out of play. I guess. I don't know. Definitely not. The oldies are coming back. There's a bull market in oldies. Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Until there isn't. Yeah. 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 Um, so with, with you, so you, a lot of what you do is futures, which is contracts to receive something out there physically or in you know, cash in, in the future. And a lot of that is leverage. So there's leverage, but it's also in the future. And theoretically, and still in many cases, the fact that it's future serves a market function. So for example, I'm a farmer, I, I harvest at a certain time of year, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge by selling at a, at a different time of year. But in crypto, there are these things that um, you probably have heard of, which are called perpetual futures, which despite the fact that it's 
called a perpetual future, it actually settles every day. So it's kind of like buying and selling the stock every single day. So if the time duration is just one day, it just kind of seems like like a lot of leverage. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's leverage upon leverage upon leverage in risky underlying assets. Now, uh, with regards to crypto, I mean, there was a lot of this yield harvesting and so on, and people loved it. And it should have sent out a massive red flag from the very beginning. It's easy to say it now, but imagine that there were a token that were created and the uh, manifesto said, no new tokens will ever be created again. What should the effective yield on that security, on that token be? Zero at the highest. Why? Because you need more tokens to pay the interest. Right. This is something that my friend Stefan Storm told me once, and he he's a mathematician. He was scratching his head saying, how can it be that um, various um, um, accounts are pay, yielding 8% or 10% even when the supply is severely restricted of the underlying tokens? And obviously something was going on there. Either it was a straight out Ponzi scheme or without going into that sort of muck, uh, it was one of those things where um, these tokens would be, or these, the assets in the accounts would be hypothecated to other other people, so they'd be lent out, reused, and reused again and again and again. Reusing treasuries is one thing. Reusing this stuff is a whole different thing. Or using pledging one token to to get a long position in an even lower quality token. Is sort of like um, layering on risk after risk after risk. And when you layer on one risk and another one on, onto another one, the risk probably doesn't go up by two. probably goes up by five. And if you do it three times, it may go up by 25. Who knows what the number is? And I've heard this, Hari, and this will definitely remind you of uh, structured products in the traditional finance world. Some yield was gener generated by selling put options on Bitcoin. So... When Bitcoin goes up or doesn't go down or fails to go down, there's no crash, you get the yield. But when Bitcoin falls, then you have to do forced selling. So it can be sort of a reflexive loop. Yeah, it's a nasty one. If you're selling downside protection on crypto, that's that's very dangerous. Yep. Yeah. And Hari, there are not a lot of Hari Krishnans in traditional finance in terms of people who have your understanding of volatility, but there are even fewer in crypto. So I, I don't know if, you know, on a lot of these desks, they have people like you who are saying, actually, maybe we should get some tail risk so we're not completely screwed below 10,000, you know? Maybe we should just buy some tail protection. Maybe we should do a collar instead of a selling a naked put. I don't know. And I, I would suspect that there are some people who are just as smart as I am on these desks. The only thing is that you need someone who has the... People need to believe that they know what they're doing. So if you have someone who really does understand risk, but doesn't have the authority to make a statement that will be taken seriously by everyone else who's minting no. it, it won't work. That's what I meant. There are no empowered Hari Krishnans. Who, the Hari Krishnans <laughs> have no power there, which is a bad thing. It's a very negative thing. No. The thing I was going to say is that there are Bitcoin miners, you know, so an oil company, they hedge their thing. They hedge it by buying puts and selling calls on oil, right? So that because their, their business uh, is enormously related to the price of oil. So if oil collapses, they need a hedge. Bitcoin miners, mm -hmm. do they do the same thing? No. They sell puts and buy calls. I'm not joking. I, I think that was called a Texas hedge, where the hedge actually is doubling down on the risk you took the first time. 
I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a question of how is your firm set up? How is the, what are people allowed to do? How much prop can you do? Because that's not a hedge at all. It's just a prop. Yeah. Um, no, it's the, the opposite of a hedge. Yeah. I got one yeah. more for you, Harry. Harry. I'm, I'm trying to blow your mind. So I'm throwing a lot of different curveballs at you. I mean, you've probably heard of You've already before. blown my mind. Yeah, sure. But have you ever heard of a no margin option? Zero margin option? No. I think it's, it's you and I enter into a contract. Like I buy a put option for you. Or I buy a call option for you. But I put zero margin down. So not only do I pay for it with borrowed money, I pay for it entirely with borrowed money. We just book the exposure. That that's what I've heard is going on in some of these market making firms. When you buy an option, you just pay the premium. But to think that you don't even need to have the premium to pay is quite another thing. So right, and then there's margin options where you pay part of the premium and part of it is borrowed money. But this is entirely borrowed money. So it's just. As long as it works, it's considered financial innovation, I've, or so I've read. So yeah, yeah, well, it works in the bull market. Yeah. If you wanted to talk a little about volatility, we can do that too, or about what's going on now and this, that, and the other. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, on my podcast, I talk a lot about like the Fed, interest rates, and you know, I, I, we can talk about that too. But I, you're you're vol experts. What's been what has stood out to you this year in in volatility in volatility land? Well, in the equity world, we've had a very well-behaved bear market. It's no longer a bear market, but we had a very well-behaved bear market. And it was quite expected. Uh, various people like Ben Eifert have pointed that out. So just buying and rolling puts on the S&P would have made you nothing. You would be down for the year. And so uh, it's been something where volatility has been actually quite rich for most of the year until November. Uh, I think last week we had a face-ripping one-day rally that may have been the 10th of November. I forget the exact date. And vol has gone down since then. And I think we may go back into a phase where markets become more complacent. And we've seen signs of that in other markets too. The dollar index, which was phenomenal so far this year, is down about 7% since early November. Uh, the 10-year yield has started to drop. That one inflation print, I don't think, changes the world. The 7.7, I forget the exact number, annualized. Yeah. But that's a market tremors thing where positioning obviously was unwound in a pretty big scale, both in the dollar, uh, equity index hedging, equity index shorts, 10-year uh, shorts, and so on. And it may well be that trend following, which has had a banner year, where you're basically betting that prices will keep going in the direction they have been, has been at least a moderate cause of the reversal because trend followers have been minting it. They've been increasing their leverage as the trends have built into this year. And the reversal in early November has been tough for them. They're still having a great year, but um, that may be a part of it. Uh, risk parity type stuff may be a factor as well. I don't know for sure. But risk parity will increase position size if volatility goes down. Vol has gone down somewhat. So um, I think we might be coming back into a slightly more normal looking over the past decade type environment where volatility is cheap, but the tail risk has actually gone up. Um, we haven't seen tail risk in the S&P. We've seen it in other markets, obviously. But um, mm -hmm. even the 10-year and the dollar, the dollar didn't have a sudden spike. It's just been trending strongly higher. 
and the 10-year has been trending strongly lower. We haven't had a volatility explosion. And every so often people will say, oh, uh, volatility doesn't matter. It's not important anymore. It happened in 2006. Happened again in various times in the 2010s. But vol is vol. Is vol. It's a, it's a, um, ultimately, it's a measure of investor sentiment or investor desire to hedge or participate in nonlinear upside. Um, and so I don't think it's going away. It might be a little less tethered to realized volatility than it used to. Again, that's a balance sheet constraint question. But um, I would not be surprised if we see some stabilization in the short term, but at the cost, at the exchange of added tail risk in the medium term. Not a prediction, but that seems to be what I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing more complacency as of November the 15th, but the higher potential for um, a risk event. All right. So realized volatility is how much the market actually moves up or down. Implied volatility is how much the market is pricing in. Forward volatility will be based on the price of options. And uh, yeah, uh, so th then volatility mostly happens at the center of the distribution, but then tail risk is those extreme uh, movements, which themselves have, have a price. Yeah, I did buzz through uh, that a little quickly. You're, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, you, you, you did, you did, but you did your job, Harry, and I, I just did mine. So the audience, uh, you know, I, some of my audience <laughs> did, did knows it, but it, now now everyone's uh, up to speed. Okay, so yeah, some people would say, Harry, this has been a horrible year. What are you talking about? Volatility has been uh, low. Let's unpack that a little bit. It hasn't been low. I it's been high and sticky, but no, there's been no mega spike. That's what I'm saying. Yes, there has been no down 6% days in the S&P 500. Uh, I don't think so, no. The, 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 the up day last week was bigger than any of the down days, as far as I can recall. But I feel like, Harry, maybe I'm wrong, that there have been a lot of down 2% days in a row. Like I think that we have had maybe some you know, down 9% weeks. Mm -hmm. And those down 9% weeks, those are pretty rough. You'd think that they'd start to get people to start buying volatility. Uh, I, I also feel like, is it, is it vol volatility people, are they obsessing over, the, of a, over a day? Over, um, oh, it's, it's realized over a day. Like it's a 1.6% move in a day, down 1.2% in a day. But if you actually look at it on like a weekly basis, I feel like the fact that, I don't know, I, I just feel like... Um, the, the drawdowns don't don't seem moderate to me, but maybe I'm just... Uh, I can give you an answer that's probably two-thirds wrong, but there's an, an element of truth to it. Imagine a Please. market, any market, that went down 5% every day. Every single day it went down 5%. What's the standard deviation of that? It's zero, because the average day is down 5%, and there's no variation around the average day. So that is a non-volatile market. It's just going down 5% every day. Now, in reality, people don't assume that the recent average is the actual expected return. But the point that is partly true, or at least somewhat true, is that if a market goes down in a very stable, trend-worthy manner, people can rebalance. They can cut their risk a little bit. They can trade around the edges. They're not getting sudden margin calls. They might have margin pressure, but they're not being forced to liquidate. And if realized volatility isn't that high, it doesn't cause risk systems to be flashing red where people have to bail out. So there's no generalized panic. It's just a orderly deleveraging. Now, the point you alluded to is a good one, which is 
a deleveraging can be orderly until it isn't. In other words, a boundary's hit and everyone has to get out. But for some reason, this year hasn't been like that. It really hasn't. So uh, it's caused a great deal of pain, but it's been more like a dull toothache than a sudden um, shock to the system. Um, outside of crypto land and, and various physical commodities and so on, depending on people's positioning. But if you just look at the stock and bond landscape, even throw currencies in, yeah, there have been no developed market mega events. I know the pound took a hit and this and that, but but no fat-tailed moves by my definition. Late late September long duration guilds. That was pretty fat tail, right? Okay, I'll give you that one. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I take that one back. Yeah. Guilds, yeah. And then maybe this doesn't qualify as tail, but the uh volatility in sh- government bonds, particularly short duration treasuries has been quite extreme. I mean, you're getting the 2-year move something like 10 basis points a day. Not I mean, not that much, but that is I mean, the, the move index is is almost as high as it was in March of 2020, maybe I, I should check, maybe higher. But, yeah, I'm uh, going gonna, gonna to push back against that because I totally agree with what you're please. saying factually, that the please. average daily mag- move magnitude is far, far higher than it's been for several years. But if you think that the level is a lot higher, yields are a much higher level. If you go back to periods where the short rate was at 4%, you'll find that 10 basis point moves are not terribly large. It's just we've been so conditioned with the recent market tremors like zero bound volatility compressed rates stuck at the boundary environment that those sorts of moves at the short end seem unusually big and i forget too but i would think if you go back far enough these are totally garden variety moves Um, um you're basically taking an asset that was tradable and then in the 2010s became untradable, namely short duration treasuries, because they just didn't move. And the move index ceased to be of any value in some sense because it loads too much on the short end and the short end was fixed. And now that the short end is free to wag around more, uh, the move has some meaning again. Yeah, I think what you're seeing isn't just a massive jump in risk, but a um, uh, revitalization of the move index. It, it works again. It didn't work for many years, and now it actually says something. And so uh, that's I think that's really what we're seeing. Right. Well, put it a different way, it worked, but what it what it showed during the past decade was that there was no volatility, and that I mean that was accurate, right? Yeah. But the thing about the move is, I think it's based on a series of durations ranging from one or yeah. two years out much further. And if the one year yeah. to the five year point is hardly moving, you basically have an index where of it doesn't, I'm making up a number, but 40% doesn't move at all and 60% does. And so you've dampened the fluctuations by 40% at the get-go. Yeah. So it just doesn't make sense to compare the short term to the long as as part of an index. I I, I guess that makes sense. Hari, this is what I've been wondering about. What about the intraday volatility of the stock? The NASDAQ opens down 3% and it ends up 5% or it opens up 5% and ends down 3%. I feel like those moves have been extreme. I don't I haven't done a a co- comprehensive look at the data and you know again I'm I'm in my 20s so what what do I know but it, it feels like there's something going on there that might not be captured by the VIX. And again, I mean correct me if I'm wrong, the VIX captures like it captures what volatility will be over the next 30 days, but that volatility is measured on a 
day by day basis. Like, oh, it opened at 9.30. Oh, it closed at, like something can open at, uh, uh, you know, SPY opens at 400 at 9.30 and it closes at four, uh, 400 as well, but it went to 380 in between, you know? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, one of them is that uh, I haven't done the study recently, but some months ago, I noticed that overnight moves are far larger than they used to be. It used to be that the futures wouldn't move that much overnight on average, unless something big happened. And then they, most of the action would take place during the day. That is no longer the case. You often see big moves overnight, whether it's Europe, Europe rebalancing or more uh, automated systems trading, this, that, and the other. There is enough liquidity to do it. And then you see often reversals during the day, corrections or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of intraday action, partly because there's a correction that needs to be made for the overnight move. And you are right. I, I don't look at the NASDAQ that closely. I don't really trade it that much anymore, but um, intraday price action has been fairly large. I'd have to look into it to see how much higher it is than it has been. But the nature of the NASDAQ has changed just as the nature of the S&P has in the sense that it's now loaded on a small number of names. Less so than it was at the end of last year, but still, it's loaded on a small number of names. So it's not the diversified index that it used to be. Now we go into the realms of passive, this, that, and the other. Uh, but uh, passive, according to the Mike Green and various other people's paradigm, uh, is responsible for the increase in size of the biggest names in these indices because mm -hmm. for every dollar that goes into um, a, a big name, let's say that you have two stocks in an index. One's worth 100, one's worth 200. Um, if it's cap weighted and twice as much goes into the 200 in dollar terms as the 100, the 200 will move more up because it's not a one-to-one -one thing where if you're twice the size, you move exactly the same amount if twice the money flows in. So the bigger names do tend to benefit disproportionately from flows into a cap-weighted index such as the NASDAQ or the S&P. Hmm. It's very interesting. And then there's the stock-weighted average of the Dow, which is just... Uh... Not not good. Even I'm not a stats stats person at all, but even I can tell someone's going on when United Healthcare is the biggest stock in the in the index. Yeah, uh, well, most of us don't look at the Dow that much. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Hari, throughout this market cycle, we've been in risk assets have been leaking lower, and volatility volatility has not been that high. So the you know the VIX maybe gets a little bit above thirty, but then it comes back to twenty four, twenty five, and I think we're maybe a little bit even lower now. That's kind of phase one of this bear market. Do you think that there's a phase two of this bear market uh, where volatility does start to perform and we start to see a little bit more uh, violent swings? And um, yeah, I mean, do you have a view on uh, when that might be? Well, your characterization of what has happened is correct. I think January was a fairly big down month in 2022, and it kind of snuck by people, including myself. So we were already down in the high single digits at that point. And as of today, which is in mid-November, we've only gone down another 8 to 10%. So the the bleed or the, the grind down has been very slow. Um, I don't think this sort of move is that persistent, is that is going to persist forever. I, I wouldn't expect us to just decline slowly another 15%. I would either expect us to recover for a while and then really go down 
or um you know kind of chop around flatline from here um again though it's hard for me to predict i can only tell you where i think the value is in the option space yeah. and the value is coming back to the short end at least in the s&p because the term structure which is the relative price of short dated versus long dated options has become steep again so you can buy short dated protection on the cheap and if you go further out it's pretty rich so you want to trade spreads or do something else further out and so a lot of the thinking that i have is in terms of maybe not barbelling but finding the right structure to hedge with based on what the surface gives me so not really predicting so much as trying to find pockets of value along the surface so my job as a hedger, which is a big part of my job, is to figure out where people like to hedge and not hedge there. Because those, those are the places where it's likely that the cost of insurance is too high. So people like to buy six-month, nine-month puts on the S&P and just go to sleep, right? And so they don't have to manage it, but they don't like to buy these positions, you know, a, a, a five data expiration put or something like that, where it's just swinging all over the place. As such, it can make money. You can, it can be a uh, either a profitable strategy or you'll lose less money as a hedge uh, as well by buying those shorter data protections that everyone is eschewing and selling everything that everyone wants to buy, which is longer data protection. Yeah, people like to buy three three to six month puts, let's say, that are somewhat out of the money, let's say 15% out of the money meaning with a strike 15% below the price, and then roll them every now and again. And then they're surprised that they don't make any money doing that because uh, they bought puts and the market went down. But the problem is the timing of the roll is very significant and they're buying at the richest part of the curve. You know, they're paying a lot to buy that insurance. Everyone else wants to buy it. Institutions like that insurance because they think what's well, bad that could happen. They average the bad predictions and they buy something that isn't that bad. And so there's a lot of excess demand for that stuff. If you look at the structured products, they try and put a floor on 15% plus down periods. And so that's, that's the rich stuff that you either want to be a seller of if you can hedge it elsewhere or just stay, stay the heck away from. And so my goal is to try and find places where sentiment is too rosy or too dire. And then build something right, so, out of that. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Harry. So, so let's say you're running that strategy for clients, or let's say I'm running that strategy to make it easier, where I'm buying a bunch of short dated puts and I'm funding that by selling a lot of longer dated puts. How do I, what if like in, in, you know, we run this experiment a thousand times, that's a good strategy. But what about if in this particular, you know, iteration of the universe, the market doesn't crash for three months and, but it does crash, crash in six months. So I've had that experience myself. I, I took a, moderately big loss in 2011. It wasn't catastrophic. It was about 5% on a position where uh, basically in Euroland, um, longer dated puts were very expensive relative to short dated ones. So I bought twice as many short dated ones as I sold long dated ones. They were all about 5% out of the money. They were puts. And the market went down about 5% close to expiration. The short dated puts went out worthless. And the long dated puts went up hugely because people started getting scared and they bid up the prices of those puts. So sentiment triggered the loss. And mm -hmm. so you never want to leave those open-ended positions too much at any tenor, uh, at any maturity, because if you do, then uh, 
there are certain things that can happen that can really put you in under pressure. So that's not a trade I would do, but conceptually, it's kind of the right trade. Don't go and buy volatility where it's rich and buy it where it's cheap. So I might do a put spread further out instead of just buying, selling a put um, and maybe buy put shorter in something, something of that nature where I'm never overpaying for insurance. That's my, that's basically the job there. Um, on the thematic front, I do a lot of other stuff. Um, whether it's with inflation hedging, whether it's commodities based, whether it's regional focused FX, the whole range, but that's more specific to the macro ideas that we generate and or what the client wants. So that's a different, different, uh, thing altogether. Different, different can of, can of worms. Uh, Harry, it's been great having you. I mean, I feel, I feel like. I could do this for another hour. Um, I, <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't want to appreciate you that. Know, I don't want to uh, trespass on your, your time, but can you talk about the role of macro? And by macro, I really mm -hmm. am talking about what I do, which is uh, sort of what you, if you turn on Bloomberg, it's somewhat in depth, but it's not the level of in depth. Like if you really want to learn about one company versus another, I mean, you have to do at least like 10 hours and stuff. And if you want to be a volatility trader, I mean, you should, you should have years and years of experience. Uh, like, I feel like there's a lot of distractions and you know, part of my job is to focus on those distractions, but like how much, let's say you're, you're running, um, you're some sort of hedge in China. I mean, are you paying a lot of attention to, Oh, people are telling me about the reopening. Oh, people are telling me that the reopening is BS. You know, I mean, how much, how do you sort of, uh, think of, uh, do you pay attention to sort of what you hear that the data or is it a very, Oh, I'm a quant and I do what my model tells me to do. And my client has entrusted me to do X, Y, Z. I will do X, Y, Z. And if I listen to Jack's podcast and he says, a guest says ABC, I don't care about that at all. It's not changing my thing. I guess it's systemic versus discretionary and also how that impacts your psychology with the news flow. Oh, lots, lots to uh, discuss there. Um, I know. I'm largely systematic, but not a hundred percent. Uh, but the, the noise, the short-term news flow has very little impact on me. All the positions are covered to the extent that there, nothing can wipe me out. So that's point number one. So I never have, I'm never forced to make a decision based on a gut reaction to a, a, an event that may be important, a news event that may be important. The noise itself is best left to the shorter term thinking media of the world. What you're trying to do and what I've tried to participate in hopefully successfully, has been long format interviews where I get to dive into stuff, take my time, build a thesis, chat with someone who I respect, and um, come away with or try to give something to people that they they can't get across the street. It might not be better, but it's something that they won't find elsewhere they, where they can think and absorb things and hopefully apply them to their own trading or thinking. That's the way I think of news as well, or of watching other people's podcasts, which is stuff will go through me, but I don't feel impelled to act on it now. I'm hoping that if I write it down or I analyze what someone said, look at the data, I might be able to use it at some point. But I'm not in a desperate desperation mode where I feel like, oh, this person said X, I need to put that into my portfolio now. And that's a bad idea to do that anyway, because they may already hold it if they're a money manager. And so they have conflicting uh, uh, reasons to do it or conflicted reasons to do it. Um, or it's something where if you don't understand it, 
it's not your trade really. You're just carrying someone else's trade and that's not always the best thing to do. Now, I agree that one needs to be a bit unemotional about these things and sometimes not doing your own research and investing all of your ego into a position is the best thing. But um, by the same token, just piggybacking off other smart people's trades, I think is a road to confusion over the long term. So, I mean, if I were 15 years younger watching these sorts of shows, I would think, let me just absorb stuff, write notes. If something catches my ear, test it, check it. See if the person knew what they were talking about or if it makes any sense. If it does, try and figure out a way to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much like music in a way where you listen to someone playing saxophone or something or any whatever instrument you might play, and it catches your ear and you think, wow, wow I'd like to put that in my playing. But if you just transcribe it and copy it, it's not the same as trying to absorb what the intent was and then put it into your mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I'd also say that if uh, being 60% as good at a certain technique or framework or style is not going to get you 60% of the results. Like if I feel like if, if you watch someone who has, is a professional technical analyst and it, that works for them, just because you know what RSI stands for doesn't mean you're going to be successful trading on technicals. And honestly, more likely than not, you'll probably like fail miserably. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I, I, that's, that's maybe a little bit too dire, but it's the same way with volatility. Like I feel like, um, uh, you know, you should know what options are and you should know how to value them, or at least how other people think about value them before you even buy or let alone sell one. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's true with single stocks as well, as well, you know, in terms of a, a style, you, there are masters of a style. Someone's a sentiment analyst. They're a fundamental analyst. This is true. And just by, yeah, yeah. Just by sort of saying, Oh, I listened to an interview with, with Hari Krishna he's a volatility expert. I know what the, I know, you know, a little bit about the VIX. Like you probably shouldn't be doing the things that Hari Krishna does unless like you have a certain level of expertise, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I obviously don't have that as well. But as well what you know? I would say though, is in, instead of being too daunting to people, I am a bit of an 80-20 guy too, because I think macro is an 80-20 world in the sense that yeah. how many things can I do well where I understand all the weaknesses? I might, I might not be the best at it. Uh, and how, how can I patch them together with other stuff I already do in such a way that I have a nice mix? So for example, you know, last year, there was tons of talk about the GameStop melt-up and positioning and the squeeze metric stuff, all, all great stuff. And people like Jem Karsan are experts in that. And many of them know more than I do uh, about the details of it. But for me, I felt I understood that stuff well enough and was able to encode enough of it in what I do that it would be more productive to do something else at an equally high level and add it to what I was already doing. It's a different mindset. So what I'm just telling, trying to tell people is, yes, you don't want to have a half-baked version of something real. You don't want to be talking about something real without doing the real stuff. But by the same token, you don't need to be perfect. You want to keep building mm-hmm. a solid set of skills that you can keep adding to what you do so that um, you have a good mix. I totally agree. And I think my point was on absolute performance. But your point is sometimes you have to pay to get an education. And if you, you size it small enough, that education can be worth it. Yeah. And then you, you figure out you have to track it figure out if it works, you figure out what doesn't work, and then you just keep building. 
uh, because the game doesn't end. And, um, you know, for me, I've done a lot of different things, as you pointed out, but I try and do a lot of things well without being overly focused on doing them perfectly. I don't worry too much if I miss something. I used to worry about it. Instead, I'm just trying to do a lot of good stuff in a productive way with some rhyme or reason to it uh, with partners I can trust. And that's that's a big part of doing doing this sort of thing professionally. There we go. Hari, it's been a complete pleasure having you on. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. People can find you on Twitter at Harry P. Krishnan 2 um, the book that you wrote with Ash Bangton, Market Tremors. I, I do do recommend it. It is quantitative, so you know, people should uh, be ready that it is you know a ri- very rigorous read. But I, I do recommend it. Thanks. What? 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 No, it, it is somewhat quantitative. People tell me that every formula you put in cuts your sales by X percent, but that's that is what it is. Yeah. It re- it really gets it really gets you thinking. So I, I recommend the book. Um, Hari, love to have you on in, uh, in the new year. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Jack. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in On this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.